Welcome to the Health Science Podcast. I'm Adam Kriz, your host, teacher at Forest Grove High School, where I teach the health science classes. Um, today, we have an, gosh, I guess a lecture with Eric Wiest, a professor at Portland Community College, who came in to introduce a concept of looking at kinesiology in the human body like a race car. Um, it was a great discussion. Um, it's pretty wide ranging. Uh, we had a really good time, and so e Eric zoomed into my exercise physiology class um, because class was on Zoom this week. Um, school was temporarily uh, closed, uh, at least in-person school, uh, due to the Omicron variant. And we should be back in school next week, but Eric was nice enough to come in and be a guest lecturer. Um, I hope you guys enjoy the lecture. Uh, keep in mind that it you know, was was for a Zoom audience, so some of the references are are visual, uh, but I think overall we did a pretty good job, and, and you should be able to follow along with the conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, have fun. I'll talk to you guys next time. There he is. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? How are we doing? Oh, you got a big class, man. When I do this, I have these boxes. I have like maybe twelve. This really? Is a good size class? How does it scroll? No, I think this is it. I think we're filled up. There, there's a few, there's a couple people missing, but uh, yeah. How how big right. are the, how big are the the exercise science classes at PCC usually? Is it around twelve kids? Well, you, you know, like in person, like when it was fully in person, mm -hmm. um, the A&P class, the X-Phys class, the, uh, what other ones have I taught that were big? There's a risk prevention, like injury management class. Those were all about 30, low 30. Wow. But then the assessment classes, like analysis of movement and fitness assessment and stuff like that. They usually try to split into two. So they're just kind of way more like hands-on. So, um, so maybe like 15, but with, uh, COVID, I feel like, I mean, those, those classes that are normally 15 or 10, the classes that are normally 20 or, or 30 or 20, like it's just kind of, it's about a third down. I feel like. Well, they're such they're, they're tough class. Yeah, I was gonna like how how do you handle this over over Zoom? Because PCC is still doing a lot of their classes online, right, or over Zoom. Yeah, mine since mine have more of a lab component. I'm fortunate, so like if it was a Monday Wednesday class, Monday would be remote, and then Wednesday we're together. Okay. So like the first one remote, the second one in person, which I'll take any day. I, I don't think that's a bad model. Like I, I, don't I like it. I love it. Yeah. I actually think it's better because the, cause then what I kind of purposefully do is I make it like lecture heavy stuff and it's recorded. So now you can go watch it five times if you want. And then I make it a little more just practical, lighthearted, you know, easier to grasp, have fun with it on the next day. And then I think it's kind of a win-win. Yeah, I, I like. I don't mind this kind of couple of weeks of, of Zoom actually, and I don't know how the students feel about it. Feel free to put in the chat what your thoughts are, but uh, <laughs> uh, students. But um, yeah. I think we could probably we can probably offload a lot of what we do in a class onto like this distance learning format, and I think oh, people yeah. would be a lot happier for the most part. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, you're in, you're in the whole K through 12, right? So it's a little bit different. But in the college model, I think some of this is here to stay. Not all of it. I mean, there's going to be classes where I think, I think there's going to be an option, right? There's going to be this like, there always has been online. There always has been in person. 
but I feel like this hybrid model is going to be a little bit more of the norm. And it's not just because of COVID, but in the college model, and I know some of your students probably too, they're old enough, but you're balancing, right? You're balancing childcare, you're balancing work with school. So like work-life balance, I think it just makes way more sense. And like on that first day when I'm lecture, it's completely, uh, I mean, I encourage it, but it's optional. So if a, a student needs to work on that Monday, let's say, they could they could watch it asynchronously, as you know, Zoom recording. And yeah. as long as they're there on like the Wednesday, they don't skip a beat. Yeah. Well, and so it just it just opens up your schedule. Yeah. Well, I'm you know I'm taking you know your your NPTI personal training course right now. Your videos are great. Like it's, awesome. it's, such, it's such an efficient way of, of, I tried to show them to the students the other day and uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't play for me. So um, I hear my voice and little drawings and <laughs> no, they're, they're really good. And, and so I, I think that is a model that, that would work and then show up in person when you have to do in-person stuff. I think there's, there's a, so much about uh, exercise science yeah. that you have to do in person. I don't know if you got to the bioenergetics lesson on that yet, but Mm-hmm. One of my students in 131 last year, or this term that just ended, uh, she took a screenshot of the end, like when it's all Krebs cycle, you know, all of it. And then she just had a mug made with just the picture of that. Oh, cool. And she's like, she's like, I make fun of this all the time because, you know, my husband or somebody will walk past and just see this. And she's like, I'm supposed to memorize this. <laughs> and it's just chicken scratch, just chicken scratch, layers and layers of chicken scratch. But well, it's all good. Yeah. As soon as I, when, as soon as I see Krebs cycle, I just tune out. I, yeah. I, I, I went through all of U of O without learning the Krebs cycle. Every, what? every, oh, without learning it or without being exposed? Without being exposed to it. Every class really? I took, yeah. Every class I took, they're like, and this is the Krebs cycle, which I'm sure you guys already know this. We'll just skip this part. <laughs> Every class I took did that. And so I somehow <laughs> the biology skipped that. Yeah. Every class. And so <laughs> and so and then I remember, I remember just trying to beat that into my head. Lions, I was at Lions till like 3 a.m. It was the only place up uh, just drinking coffee, trying to bang the Krebs cycle in my head. And you know what? It didn't work. But then once you start teaching it, you go, man, it actually isn't too bad. I mean, so I remember I, I, I got the, I think I got the outcome of it. If there's oxygen, glucose yeah. will split and produce 32 units of ATP. If there's not oxygen, is it four units of ATP? And then you build up lactic acid. Depends. Okay. Basically, long story short, though, why you need it to happen is oxygen. Like when you eat every, every um, glucose molecule you eat, right. has six carbons on it and you have to be able to get rid of the six carbons and aerobically. How you do it is you attach a C to an O2, right. And it becomes a CO2 and then you breathe it out. So as weird as it sounds, when you exhale, you're breathing lunch out. Like as, as weird as that sounds, the carbon piece of it, right? And uh, that's one of the ways we rid our body of, it's a, we have a lot of exhaust systems. So if you think of a car, you have like a muffler and tailpipe and we have skin and we have urinary system and digestive system, but we also have respiratory system and respiratory system helps us get rid of carbon and hydrogen. And the hydrogen comes out in like water vapor. So you can't really see it unless it's really cold. But if you go and breathe out a window, you'll see it, right? So, um, but yeah, so anyways, we, we bring in, that's, that's a, it's a funny question because I ask my students this when we get to the respiratory and the cardiorespiratory chapter in 131, I say, why do we need oxygen? Like, like scientifically, why do we need it? And not one person in my class could say, one, to get rid of carbon, two, to keep the electron transport chain going. And that's how we generate that ATP you were talking about, right? 
at 32 or if it's, I mean, if it's fatty acid, it might be 400 something ATP, but the, the oxygen keeps it going because when the hydrogen on these reducing agents come back in and turn that wheel, if there's not an oxygen right there to grab it, then we'll equilibriate and then nothing moves. Hmm. So by the time you go through that, Really, to me, the goal is to just say, why do we need to know this Krebs cycle? It's because it, it keeps us pumping out energy, right, that we need. And then it keeps us from becoming toxic. So we, you know, we can remain uh, vital, right? <laughs> okay. So, um, but anyways, yeah, when you get to that one in that course, you'll laugh because it's a big chicken scratch. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I already did. And then I saw Krebs cycle and, you know, I just treat it like, oh, a you, cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I just hit forward. <laughs> yeah. I just like, oh, cool. I'm just, I'm watching Tom and Jerry right now. And, uh, there you go. <laughs> so, and that's, that is what it feels like. Yeah. Um, I'm probably, yeah, I'm probably not doing my students any, any, any justice by staying ignorant about it. Um, so, no, Hey, I, I, yeah. So we're, we're jumping in, we're, we're, we're jumping into the kinesiology section and I'm, I'm shamelessly stealing all your stuff. And, and, and I shamelessly stole it from other, you know, if you think about it, we stole every word and everything we've ever learned in our life. So really, I think the right way to say it is I'm adapting it into my own model and I'm using it right my way. And just as I did, through, I mean, I had the same teachers you had. So I took Osternig and Cho and Klug and um, Susan Vershear and all these people, and I had to kind of make it something right. So, I mean, don't downplay it. Oh, okay. Perfect. You've adapted it into your own model. I love it. Yeah. But so, in, in like you just did with the, with the exhaust system of, of a car, you make something very complex like the Krebs cycle very understandable. And so I was hoping rather than me try to try to go through your race car analogy of the human body, I was wondering if you, like you could talk about the the how the body's a race car and then go okay. into a little bit on the driver's education for the for the kinesiology part of it. And then students, students are probably design. Be, yeah, students will be talking about about program design. Yeah, well, we're, so next semester, so uh, our semester is ending after next week. And so next semester, we'll get into program design and students will be designing programs. Okay. Um, okay. And so the, you know, the, they're, they're doing that one reflection where they have to list the exercises and, and this axis, an upper body exercise and the, the sagittal plane or this axis of rotation gotcha. and that sort of stuff gotcha. is what they're, is what they're assigning Perfect. for today. Um, All right. Well, can you, can you share a screen with, or can you make me a host? Yeah, I can. But, um, it's probably easiest if I do a little talk slash chicken scratch, as you know, and you've seen. Sure. Sure. Um, and students might be popping in and out. I turned the sound off on whether okay. they're, but uh, it's okay. their their requirement for being here is being here for for thirty minutes, and then they can they can log off after they put a question or comment in the chat. Okay, here we go. Participants, we're gonna go to. I just gotta find your name. I might be able to do it. Can you see that? Yeah, I can. Look at that. Okay. Yeah, I could just do it because I'm not. I'm not really sharing. I'm just doing a whiteboard. Okay. So, with kinesiology and development, really the question is: is how do we go from this little thing to us? Right. Oops. I'm not able to draw for some reason. My pen needs to be charged. That's at ninety-nine percent. There we go. So how do we go from this to kind of this upright being, right? Let me try to see if I can do this. That's an awful back. That's a guaranteed back pain back right there, Adam. 
<laughs> Class. <laughs> it looks like it got smashed by a sledgehammer. But anyways, point is, is how do we go from this early, early, early on development you know, almost, I mean, it looks like a little salamander, right? And if you see pictures kind of as, as um, baby is developing, I mean, this is probably a couple weeks in, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we come out as baby, but eventually it takes a while to get up to kind of our ability to stand and ambulate and gait patterns and twisting rotation patterns and movement patterns. This entire, this entire stage, this is called a primary curve where it's kind of like the concave structure is opening forward. And if you look at that on the body, there's one here. There's a little one here under the tailbone. These are all, these are all kind of a forward opening, but the question is, is how do we develop these ones? And these are called secondary let me do it in a different color oops it shot me into a let me write in a different color so that's a secondary curve that's a secondary curve that's a secondary curve in the cervical vert and if you if you look at the body after a while what you notice is it's just kind of this giant compression spring structure that needs to learn how to look left and right, move left and right and forward and backwards and, and all that stuff you're learning, right? Those planes of motion. And the whole motor sequence, the motor development sequences to get from this little thing or even before that to this adult matured self. And this is our vessel, right? So this is, this is our vehicle. I refer to a lot in how I ride is like, this is our race car. And <clears throat> To, to run this optimally, if you think about it, the human movement system is comprised of three main or oops, why did I put a four? Three main organ systems of the body. We have muscular, we have neural, and we have skeletal. Those are the three main organ systems that allow us to do all those things I just named. However, you know, just like you have a car that has a main frame, there's your skeleton, it has a motor, there's your muscles, and it has computer software, there's your neural. It also has other things, right? It has, it has a fuel pump, and it has an exhaust system, and it has all these little sensors that help keep this race car in what we call homeostasis, or just running to its prime or running to its optimal. And that's things like cardiorespiratory system, urinary system, integumentary system with the skin, your um, lymphatic system, and your immune system just in general. And um, the, the training of this and what you're getting into program design, when anybody asks me, let me come back, when, when folks ask me program design questions, it's always like, well, what, what are we talking about? Because if you think about it, like my wife right now is doing a kind of a elimination diet. She went and got a inflammatory food diet. Right. And if you think about it, those changes are program design. All of you that are in sports, those coaches put you through a sequence from kind of a start to a finish, which is program design, strength and conditioning is program design. But then you also have the developmental sequence going from infant to toddler to adolescent, to young adult, to adult, right? Where we learn how to move and operate and train the system and train the neurological system. Cause we don't, we don't necessarily have the innate, like go today blueprint of that, but we're naturally going to develop into that sequence. So what I mean by that is you can take a baby They've done research and I've, I've seen a lot of research out of check because it came out of DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, but they took babies and they isolated them, which I know it sounds like inhumane, but basically they didn't let babies learn how to walk by watching you walk. 
And those babies still went through the same exact motor sequences. They still lifted their head. They still learned how to turn and roll, crisscrawl maneuvers up to a rocking position. And those babies eventually ended up walking. It took a little bit longer, but not much though. And it's, so even though it's not like I know how to do it, it's in that sequence. It's in that developmental pattern where that organism is going to naturally go that way as long as something doesn't kind of mess it up. So with, with motor control, there's a lot of stuff that you, you can or will get exposed to, and then you can make a PhD out of it. So, and, and, you know, Adam, as you know, you did track and I was a rower and you've probably done other sports. I've done other sports too, but I mean, you could do it just with the sport also, like just one task, like your, your task and my task in college were very repetitive. Right. And, and, you know, if, if you can master this, you'll do well. And then once you do it well, you just want to kind of keep repeating that you'll eventually get better and you add capacity. But so, I mean, it's like sports skill, there's learning developmental sequences. There's all the auxiliary kind of components of the race car we have to train um, up all the way into even just like mindset and wellness. Yeah. Hey, I got a question from a student. It's a pretty good one. Um, yeah. She asks, uh, is it through trial and error that babies are able to figure out how to, to walk then? Is it what, what is it? It, Cause like, like what you said from everything that I, it's not that it's programmed in to walk in, in our brains, but it's programmed into uh, the what desire. Is, yeah. Well, the, it's the limbic system. So if you think of, if you think of the hierarchy of the neurological system on the top, you have limbic and limbic is like shelter, food, survival right? And then under that, you have motor cortex. And then under that, you have cerebellum. And then under that, you have brain, spinal cord. And then under that, you have like reflexes. So with animals, when the desire is there, right, there's always going to be a push to survive. And with, with kind of these small beings, that push and that desire is and it, it, just, it seems slow motion to us, but Adam, you could probably attest to this to having kids. Days are slow, but years are fast. It actually goes by pretty quick. You know, you blink, right? I'm blinking, and my kids are nine and seven. And just yesterday, it seemed like they were doing the trial and error, falling, right, and adjusting. So, so it's kind of a little bit of desire, right? A need. Um, you know, getting, getting eyes on the horizon and then developing all sense stuff. So being able to hear and acoustically hear and, and, you know, our photoreceptors in our eyes and watch. And so it's a, it's a combination of the development of that, this innate desire to survive and then some trial and error. And there's a lot of trial and error as you remember. And I remember, and those of you in here that maybe have little, brothers or sisters or nieces or nephews, or you, you, maybe you're, you're um, babysitting or watching kids or helping or you have kids, but yeah, there's a lot of trial and error, right. With it. And you fall forward. And then the next time you fall back and the next time you fall forward a little less, <laughs> and then you fall back a little less. And, you know, eventually you have those little small, and we'll get to some of this, but you have those little small stabilizing muscles in your body that can kind of help keep you in check keeps you on the runway right it's like a pilot trying to land you you, you can't go too far left you can't go too far right but you yeah. some wiggle room i mean just hit the runway so so a couple like so my understanding is that for every motor pattern that your friends your brain sends to your muscles the cerebellum keeps track of that motor pattern and tries to determine if it matches the sensory input that comes back from yeah. that movement. Um, yeah. Because think about, think about why that's important because if all I ever do is learn to walk on like a turf field, 
but now all of a sudden I'm hiking up around Mount Hood and I'm on a, on a pitch and an incline and there might be ice and there's a wind gust and there are roots and all this stuff. Like we're bringing in millions and millions and millions of data points per second on what we see, what we feel on the bottom of our feet, our vestibular system, right? With our sense of equilibrium, even what you smell, what you hear. And all of that runs, runs in. And most of those senses um, will come in kind of thalamus and through ponds, like disperse, but 100%. So this is like, this is like the fine tune adjuster, right? So it's like, I learned how to walk. That's in my motor cortex. But now I'm walking on like Mount Hood and I need to make these like finite adjustments like in the moment now. And I do that via bringing in all of my um, sensory at once. So you have three types of nerves, right? You have your senses and then you have your inner neurons. Those are like the, the uh, connectors, right? You know, what do we want to call them? The master controllers, you can say. And then we have our motor output. So, you know, you're going to, you're going to, let's say you walk in like this normal learned behavior, but now all of a sudden things are coming at you. Are you having to go around things or on different inclines? You have to be able to adjust. So that's where this, these master inputs, these inner neurons, especially over back here in the cerebellum have to make these small decisions of which we've got to learn. We've all tripped on stumps and roots and knocked into things and we've adapted. We've, that's like program design. We've adapted to that. We've adapted to our surrounding environment so we can succeed. Hey, Eric, hold on. My kid's school is calling. I'm just going to mute you and keep going with what you're doing. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so um, we have a motor development piece that we have to think about. We have a homeostatic piece that we have to think about, which is like being optimal. Um if you put the wrong type of gasoline in your car, for instance, it's not going to run well. If the air filter gets plugged up, it's not going to run efficiently. If the alignment is off in that car, it's not going to run as well as it should. So all of this stuff is kind of grouping a lot of things, right? So we have all these correctional specialists and therapists and chiros and acupuncturists and body workers and they're trying to get your body aligned so those are like alignment specialists if you want to think of it that way um, if you're having some turning issues in your car that's kind of that cluster of professionals and then you have the whole cluster of internists right you have nutritionists and dietitians and exercise physiologists um, we have our whole gauntlet of, of docs and nurses and medicine and all that. And, and a lot of that is making these inner organ units and cells working functionally. Um, and then we have all our developmental sequence coaches and coaches and strength and conditioning coaches. And you have this whole umbrella that's trying to slowly start making the race car run faster or be able to go farther, jump farther, depending on what really the race is or pull more, right? If it's some kind of, uh, you know, like a, like a, a semi truck, right? The name of the game of that race is to be able to haul a lot of weight over passes and get them to cities. So that's what the strength and conditioning aspect and, and coaches aspect does. So you have these, you have these kind of major umbrellas that all sort of factor in into optimizing this race car, optimizing your human movement system to be its best for its race. And that's another thing that has to be defined. So, you know, before you can really make the race car the best, you have to understand what the race is. So Adam was a hammer thrower. Right. Adam, if Adam just said, Hey, I'm track and field. And we said, Oh, we got, okay, here's, here's the program for Adam. And we wrote Adam, this perfect, like workout routine that's periodized micro and macro cycles and all this stuff. And he started doing it. What if I said, well, how do you know if he's a sprinter, a distance runner, 
a hammer th thrower. What if he's in discus, which is a totally different, well, maybe not. Is that, that's probably the closest, right? But like, what if you're in javelin, which is different than hammer, right? Um, so all of a sudden now it's like, well, did we really train that athlete right? Same thing in like soccer. What if you have a soccer team and you have a goalie and a goalie has to be an absolute like Ferrari, like cheetah, right? Goalie needs to just be reactive and explosive. But then what if you train that goalie the exact same as your forward or your halfback? And it's like, you're trying to get all kinds of cardiovascular endurance in the off season. But if you do too much of that, you're making the Ferrari more of like this kind of quote unquote Prius and you're making it less reactive and less of the Ferrari. So we have to be careful in how we, how we construct. Right. Well, yeah. What's up? So a, a student just asked another really great question because what you're talking about yeah. kind of illustrates the fact that humans are very adaptable critters and, and we, we've cool. covered every square inch of the planet. Um, we have yeah. permanent settlements in Antarctica. Um, yeah. and so we can adapt to a whole variety of environments. And so a student asked a question. It's a really good one. In species in which there are more offspring who require less attention from their parents to survive, does each animal go through an expedited version of how people learn to walk, et cetera? Or do they essentially skip that step of development? In other words, I think what she's asking are, is a horse born with, or maybe not a horse, let's say a uh, um, fish, I don't know. Do they, do they still go through that experimental process or are they born with a movement pattern built in, you know? Well, I mean, I, it, it, you, def you definitely have a longer kind of um, developmental sequence with mammals, right? Mammals stay with mama and mama feed offspring mm -hmm. up until a certain amount of developmental stage. And then every animal, it's like a different time, but it does seem like humans are long. right? And, and I don't know if that's long by need or long societal, you know, back in the day, I think humans, you know, it was like earlier, right there, you know, humans didn't live as long. So you know, humans were having potential offspring younger with age or marrying younger with age, things like that. And now it just seems like doing this. I have some friends who have kids that are in their young twenties and they're like, no, your kids don't leave at 18. That was, that, that was like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> now they leave at like 25, 30. <laughs> oh, so, um, you know, maybe that's getting even longer. I don't really know. So I don't know how much of that societal on our part. Um, but there is, there is a, um, and once again, what I said was like DNA wise, behavior wise, those babies will learn how to walk regardless if there's mom or dad and the horse is going to do the same and the alligator, well, alligator is reptile. Um, let me just talk about animals. Cause I don't want to talk about things I don't know anything of, but dogs are going to do the same. Right. But it does seem like we are slow to the punch, if that makes sense as humans. It takes a long time. Um, those of you who know anything about this, I feel like the first about three, four years of a kid's life, the parent's job is just to keep them alive. Right. And I definitely don't feel like it takes that long with other animals. But no. Yeah. So yeah. Lucy, did, did you want to clarify at all? <clears throat> um, I think that answered the question, Mr. Chris. I think fish were a good example for you to provide. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, Mr. Weist, I keep thinking that how long it takes to, like, raise humans is probably proportional to how long humans live, but then turtles and certain parrots also live an extraordinary Oh, long I see. Time. What, is that back. what you were going into? Is it like a ratio of how long we live to how long it takes to develop? Uh, well, that's a totally separate question, but just gotcha. a thing I started thinking about. Um, 
and life and how we live and all that is kind of evolved right with humans with medicine and you know what that's done if you look at kind of how long we lived hundreds of years ago to now so we've kind of tilted the scale on that little evolutionary piece with with meds and availability of food and monocrops and all i mean that could be a whole different discussion but as far as as far as all beings and all that, I what I don't want to do is sit here and pretend I know about all animals because my background is biomechanics and kinesis with humans. My dad's a veterinarian, but that's that's about as far as I'll go with dogs and cats and, and us and what I watch on Discovery with my kids, right? But I mean, don't, don't I like where your head's at. Yeah, this definitely isn't my area of expertise too, but it seems like humans have traded off adaptability for um, um, pre-made motor patterns. We don't necessarily, we're not necessarily born with these. We're not, we're not born being able to walk within a few hours like horses are. The, it, we have to go through this long period of development and learning and, and let alone learning like speech motor patterns. And, and that sort of stuff takes a long time. And the trade-off is we're able to adapt to every single environment on planet Earth and beyond. Like yeah. we've, we've stepped foot on the moon. And so I think it seems like there seems to be a trade-off with this adaptability thing and not being born with a preset motor pattern and having this learning process come in where we got to take care of kids for where they're utterly helpless, at least till 13, according to my experience. Yeah, um, yeah. But the trade-off is we can adapt to just by any environment, which the other thing I was thinking, yeah. if desire is what motivates that process for babies to learn how to walk, then all the seniors that are looking for college entrance right now that have this desire to go to college, they're really engaging in the same learning process that infants yeah. did while they're learning how to walk. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, desire, I mean, if you have it enough, and especially when it's that high up the motor pattern, right, when, or when it's that high on the neurological hierarchy, which is limbic, you know, we, we, we want to survive. Um, and then the other thing, too, and, and I can't, don't quote me on this, but we have these big, huge brains, right, that, that have so much ability. It takes a while to program all those up, where if you have a smaller brain and you know, you, you're in charge of just a few things for survival. You know, you walk, you whatever, use your tongue to get food or whatever, like a chameleon or whatever we're talking about. There's not as much to upload in that gestational, that splitting, and then all that developmental phases and incubation phases. Um, and once again, though, I'm not a, I'm not a um, animal biologist or behaviorist or any of that. I don't want to claim that at all. Mm. So um, one thing though, that I think is really important to understand with training. And, and this goes back to what Adam originally asked me to do, which is talk about these race cars and, and really what we're looking at is we have, um, and I don't know how much you went into this in your AMP, we have different, muscle fiber type we have really three kind of major types we have a type one we have a type 2x and a type 2ax we have a prius if you want to think of it like that we have uh, muscle fiber and, and neural connections to that muscle fiber that are built for stamina and we all have it and that's what allows you to have like a eight hour job where you stand at your job and it keeps your back line. It keeps your erectors and your hamstrings hunkering down at your hips. And ultimately what that does is it, it allows you to keep your eyes on the horizon and all that musculature. A lot of it is what I referenced earlier. And it's the development of the secondary curvature, which takes a while, a little while. And if you have kids, you hear this like tummy time, you know, you put them on their belly so they can start, lifting their head and start looking for mom and what that starts to do is it starts to develop that that musculature that's going to be needed to help um that that infant eventually develop into being able to stand but we have to also be able to turn and that's rolling maneuvers 
and we have to be able to walk on one leg. And a lot of that comes from crawling. So you develop your glute meat and min and TFL. So those are your abductors of your hip. You develop those in crawling sequence. So there's a lot of studies that look at adolescence and like they look at, you know, what it was like as a toddler and, and where those adolescents are now and how those muscles are firing and kids that are sped up in that process of crawl or like thrown into crib to just kind of, they prematurely stand too long because they have something to latch onto. What that did was it fast forwarded them past that, that crawling stage. And that crawling stage is what trains your frontline of your body and the front lines a lot of that stuff on the lateral compartments that help prevent you from having knees caving in or trendelenburg gate where your hips shooting out and um so even though that's that's in us we can still kind of get in the way of that really coming to true fruition with with how we kind of sociologically train, you know, we're all in this experiment of our life, right? We can change that by injuries or how we train ourselves. Um, but long story short, we have to train it. And we have these muscle fibers that are built for the long. Those are the Priuses. And we all have muscle fibers that are built for the short bursts. And those are the Ferraris or the Cheetahs. And then we all have muscle fibers that are built for the intermediate. You know, I don't know what you want to say on that one. I run out of like cool cars on that, but like a Toyota Camry, I don't, you know, something where you get like 30 miles a gallon, it gets a little pickup, but it's not the best fuel efficient. It's not the fastest, but it's not the worst in any of that. So it's something kind of in the middle and we're all a blend of this. Now, some of us genetically might be more predisposed to a type one or a type two. And with that being said, you have this natural ability for maybe endurance, or you have this natural ability to like jump higher than some kids or run faster. Um, so that that's the first clue maybe of where you're at, but how we train and like what Adam said, I a hundred percent believe in this is we're going to adapt to whatever input, whatever sensory or, motor input we put into the system, we're going to adapt to that with time. And that adaptation process kind of runs through this non-linear, it's an undulating fashion. Um, and I don't know if you've gone into general adaptation syndrome or Lou Osternig called it stress adaptation at Oregon. Um, but all cells in your body go through that alarm and resistive and exhaustive phases. And we gain or we fortify or we get better depending on what we input, but we have to input correctly. So there's so many times where I go, like, here's a good story that'll, that'll help drive this home. My twin brother, I have an identical twin brother and he ran track at Lane Community College, which is right by Yuvo. And he, he had this like opportunity to walk on for the football team. I don't know how he got that because my brother was one of the worst football players I've ever seen. But anyways, he's going to walk on to the U of O football team. So he joined Lane so he can get faster so he can walk on, right? So he was under Grady O'Connor, ex-athlete at Oregon, 400-meter um, uh, hurdler, safety on the football team, like really good athlete. And every time I would see him working out in the weight room, they'd be doing like bench press and squats and all this kind of stuff with a lot of weight, cleans, power cleans. At the end of the year, my brother and I are pretty competitive. At the end of the year, I ran against him in an all-comers meet. Adam might have been there. It was an all-comers meet at Oregon. And do you remember Jason Sly? Oh, yeah. So Jason Sly, myself, uh, and then a couple lane guys. It was, uh, so I don't know if you know them, but we all ran. We were all in the same heat. Jason Sly, by all means, wasn't that fast, but he won. And then the my brother was literally, this was in a 200 meter. He beat me by 
less than 0.1 seconds. And he was right in front of me. So I kind of got to see it. And it was 100% just start mechanics. He got me by a second right at the start. And then we literally just went like that the rest of the way. And he did track this whole year. But it took me a while to figure out what happened. And looking back at it, what I really think happened was he trained the race car wrong. He was, he was training his body. Like if the competition of the sport that I was competing with him against was who could bench the most or who could squat the most, he would kill me. But, but since we did this sport, which is like, who's the biggest Ferrari, but he wasn't really training to be a Ferrari. He was training to be like an SUV or like a, like a semi truck. Right. So what ended up happening was there wasn't a lot of adaptation to really what he thought, which was get fast. So the lesson was, is like, well, if you really want to train a Ferrari, you got to train like a Ferrari. If you want to train to get bigger and move more mass and hypertrophy, then you want to train like a, like a strong man or woman competitor, right? You want to train for strength. You want to train for mass, cross-sectional area, more mile filaments, you know, stuff like that. You're going to adapt bigger green light. You're going to be able to move more weight like a semi-truck. And if you want to be more of a Prius, you got to train like a Prius, right? You can't just do hundred meter sprints and then expect to go out there and win a marathon, right? It's probably not going to happen. So that is, that was like the biggest, I guess it is under biomechanics. It's under that genre of kind of sport, but if we don't get the, the, you know, accelerations and decelerations and velocities and all that kind of stuff, right. Then it's going to be hard to succeed in the race. Just like if we threw a pick a car, if we threw a NASCAR into a Baja race series, it's probably not going to succeed. And it's not because that car isn't great. It's just, we're not aligning the race car with the race. And that's a mistake that a lot of coaches and strength coaches make. And that's a big mistake that, and we all have to take ownership, but that's a big mistake that the race cars make because sometimes we always, it's, you know, it's like greener, it's like greener on the other side of the fence. Right. But sometimes it's the greenest where you water. And if you're built genetically to run endurance, but all you want to be is Usain Bolt, well, part of that is a psychological, you know, we always want what we can't have kind of thing. So that's what I meant by we got to get the head right. We got to get the body right, the fuel systems right, the neurological, you know, recruitment right so that we can perform to our best. It's so hard because it seems like, you know, I like the race car analogy, but it breaks down because we don't, if you're, if you're going to train like a Prius, like if you, you would engineer a Prius to have better fuel economy, you would design the parts and, and plug in the parts and, and, and build the parts in a Prius to have better yeah. fuel economy. But to train an athlete, you, you have to design challenges to stress the systems that will adapt yeah. to, to essentially to, create, to create that better fuel economy. To its potential, though. Yeah. So, so what you said, where it's like, we have to build the race car. Well, humans have for eons and eons. And, and how we do that is you pick a mate and you have a child, right? If, I, if, if my goal in life was to have a child that was a world-class marathoner, then my best chances would probably go try to find somebody that's a really good runner and, and propose, right? <laughs> um, so genetics is, is one piece. Right. But yes, you're right. To a, to your, there's a really good CSCS study. I could send it to you, Adam. But basically what it says was you can train the heck out of somebody to their potential. You can take a deconditioned and make them conditioned. But the difference from conditioned to elite 
is genetics. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's all I'm saying. So, so there's you can adapt. You can do it all right up to potential. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, if your potential wasn't a Prius, then you can adapt it all you want, and you're probably not going to win the marathon race, right? Well, if sure. there's elite Priuses. But however, I believe this in my heart of hearts. I think we've all been set up to be elite in something. It just has to do with accessibility, desire, like um, exposure, equipment. You know, we had, I used to have a bunch of rowers that were just in garbage equipment. So no matter how hard they pull, there was a team in this lighter, less frictiony thing. Um, you know, you see it in like swimming with speed suits and, uh, you know, you got all kinds of U of O's, like, you know, U of O's like the guinea pig for all the Nike stuff. So they got the heat reduction clothing and all that stuff. You know, the biggest three neural trippers of our body is heat, uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, CO2 and lack of glucose. So if you can create equipment that dissipates heat, or if you can create some kind of, you know, oxygen on the sideline that helps you get rid of CO2, all that stuff is such a advantage, right? But everybody's not going to have access to it. So right. So that's or why I said like accessibility in there. But, um, but yeah, this is such a fun field because Program design is a really cool class and it's a really cool subject, but you can't go in it thinking it's black and white. Right. Because the, the problem is, like you said, is there's a million variables and it's not as easy as like, like for instance, make my brother stronger. He beats me in a race. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, there's, there's all of the, all of the what you're fueling yourself and how you're breathing and luck and genetics and coaching skill set and timing and all of it right and um you know it's cool though when all the stars align as you know and the success that you hit and and you know i see it more with kids now but i love there's nothing better than going from point A of the year and setting out some goals, right? And navigating through a million pitfalls and getting to the end and being very successful. It's really cool. Yeah. And in, if you're part of it, you know, as, as you were and I was, and you know, a lot of you I'm sure are, uh, you know, if you're aware of it enough, you might not notice it, but I don't think there's really... I don't really think there's a lot of chance. Like I think a lot of this can be numerically like quantified is like, if you go look at who wins the Super Bowl and who peaks at the end and all these teams that always start out slow and they end hot. I don't think there's, I don't think that's just chance and luck. I think there's a plan and I think there's patience and I think there's smart strength and conditioning coaches and coaches and they don't care about winning the first game. They just want to win the last. And that's an important concept too, because on um, the stress adaptation, if we push, 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 we're going to push right over the cliff to the itis. Well, we get injured. Yeah. I think, I think you have to, you have to have winning or, or whatever your goal is for, for every game should be to win the game. You, you have to have that, but sure. you just have to go in with the best methodology. You, you yeah. can leading, preparing for, for that game. Yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of luck that goes into winning and losing. You know, like, and, and so a lot you can't control. Yeah. Right. And so you just got to shrug off the winning and losing part and stick with your methodology. Yeah. And eventually you're going to have positive outcomes. Right. Like, like, you know, but you're going to be doing this. You're going to be working your way up through the year. Right. And you might be working your way up here and some team might have just to here. Right. So they beat you this game but they can't sustain it, mm -hmm. right? And you're coming up. So it's like they might have beat you the first game of the year, but 
you take them on towards the end of the year, right? Because I agree with what you're saying. But, and I agree, a lot of luck. There's got to be a, a plan. Everybody has to commit to it. And, um, you know, the beautiful thing about, you know, high school, you have ATCs and nutritionists and coaches. And when you get to college, you have more resources. But taking advantage of those. And, you know, professional athletes, they have an off season, right? And they take time off and they have all the resources in the world, massage therapists and ACUs and all this stuff, sports psychologists. And then we expect average Joe just to pound it every day and never miss a day at the gym with no off season, but yet they don't have any of those resources and it's just not realistic. And eventually people kind of go off the deep end and yeah, here comes the idea. And, and and I also think like there should be, I, I feel like people do get hung up on the tangible achievements. Did you take first place? Did you bench oh. 300 pounds? Did you, you know, the, and, and there's not a much, there's not as much appreciation of the process or extracting whatever positive outcomes that you did get from that training experience. Yeah. You know, um, oh, 100%. And who changed that at Oregon? I mean, we got the win the day motto coming in in what, 07, 08? When did Chip Kelly come in there? Um, so all of a sudden, you had this very day-to-day mindful, just give me your best rep right now. Just give me your best effort this one moment. And then if you do that, that body of work will take care of itself in the game, right? And that's kind of that same motto, right? Is enjoy the process, the result. It'll take care of the result. But you're right. You can't control it because you might run into somebody that's just better sometime. So don't get too high. Don't get low. Yeah. There's always something better. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. For sure. And so that's where, yeah. I I don't know. That's where the, the, Program design is the part that I have a lot of sacred cows, I think, when it comes to teaching exercise physiology. And I, I think it kind of holds me up because I I always want to make sure that students get like the the soul of, of yeah. the concept <laughs> correct and not just the not just the, the the product of the concept. And yeah. So I know what you mean. Yeah. It's a hard one. It's a hard one because you've lived it it's very relatable and it's very meaningful so when you're teaching things that are very meaningful and define a lot of who we are and are a big reason why we're doing what we're doing if it wasn't for sport and we didn't love that then maybe we wouldn't be teaching anatomy and phys and kinesis and about the body and coaching and if we had a bad time and what we did and we had bad coaches and strength coaches and it was more discouraging and it was all about winning. We didn't win, so we got berated. Then maybe we wouldn't be doing what we're doing right now. So since it is so positive and relatable and meaningful, yeah, it's not so much you want somebody to learn it. You almost want them to to walk it and feel it for a second, you know. And yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I know I, what you mean. Yeah, that, that, that's that's exactly what it what it feels like. But. Uh, yeah. Well, Eric, we're, we're running to the end of uh, the end of class here. Um, yeah. Do we have any more students from our from our vast audience of students? Still we have one. We have one. This this who is this? It's Lucy. Yeah. In it for Lucy. Long. Lucy, you know, as teachers, they always say like you're not supposed to have favorites. You know, and Adam can't say this, but you're my favorite in this class. I'll admit it. I, I tell my students that. I tell my athletes that. I go, man, I have favorites. The ones that are going to like try the hardest, they're my favorites. I just say it all the time. I just, you I don't just have to get an A. Us. It's not about an A. It's about just the effort, right? If you put in the effort, you're my favorite. So by you hanging out, you're my favorite. Good job. Um, <laughs> well, Eric, thank you. Lucy, thanks for yeah, sticking thank around. You. I'm gonna go ahead and stop recording here. Maybe I'm insane. It's not that hard since
to the brain Feels like prison to the heart You know I'm selfish Selfishly in love Maybe when I'm bigger and you can stream my new song, Selfish, on all of your favorite platforms. <laughs> Perfect. Nailed it. There you go. That's what uh, I do. That's, <laughs> that's you do it. it. You, do, you do it very well. Um, you just like say the same thing for 20 million takes that sounds exactly the same and then pick the one you like. <laughs> well, you'd make a great teacher. 